The following sermon contains mature subject matter. Viewer discretion is advised. We are in our second week in this series, Kingdom and Culture, where we are looking at what it means for us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as followers of Jesus, to be living in many ways as citizens and residents of Canada and part of a culture that is different than that that Jesus proclaims. We have two kind of simplified definitions of kingdom and culture that we're playing on. The idea that the kingdom is where God is present and where things are done his way, and the culture being the way things are done around here. And sometimes there's conflict. Sometimes there are things where, as citizens of the kingdom, we can affirm in culture and say, that's actually a glimpse of the kingdom of God. But we are working through this issue of of what does it look like for us to live as followers of Jesus in a culture where there are going to be some differences, some clashes, some rubbing up against what the kingdom of God and Jesus say about life. Last week we talked about the important issue of identity. We're going to be handling all kinds of interesting topics. Today we're talking about sex, so just to put that out there for you. We can't handle this topic in 30 minutes appropriately on Sunday morning in a sermon. And so we have built in a couple ways for us to kind of expand the conversation a bit more. First of all is small groups. If you're involved in one of our small groups on Monday, Tuesday, or Saturday, we're going to have a chance for you to dive into the passages a bit more that that we're looking at today and to, to have some conversation together as a group about this. As well, we are going to be doing a pastor's Q&A forum on November 1st, where myself, Pastor Gordon, and Pastor Phil will be here at the Montague site, and we'll be answering questions that you have that have come in so far throughout the series. So honestly, what you can do, my phone number is at the bottom of the screen there. You can text a question to that number in the middle of my sermon if you want. My phone's in the office. It's on silent. It's not going to interrupt me. And, and we will add that to a list of questions that we'll tackle that night when we have the Q&A forum. So if, if there's more that you want us to flesh out, if you're like, Tyler said something here and I don't really understand, or I want to hear more about where he's coming from on that, um, send a text in. If you're not the texting type, write it down somewhere and pass it to me after the service, and, and we'll add it in as anonymous question uh, to our pastor's Q&A forum. So, we're talking about sex today, and some of you have never had a conversation about sex in the church. Some of you uh, are already feeling uncomfortable. I woke up this morning with a really nice knot in my stomach about our conversation today, so that's fantastic. You know, the thing about uh, why the church has you know, been so strong about its perspective on sex is because sex might lead to dancing. And uh, (laughs) we need to be able to have these conversations. We need to be able to talk about this issue in the church, to talk about the kingdom of God perspective on sex and sexuality, because here's the thing, is Monday to Saturday, we are bombarded by the cultural understanding and expression of sex and sexuality 
and the way that sin has distorted, monetized, and, and used sex as a means of getting something from you. We need to be having these conversations to be shaped what, by what Christ says and by the kingdom view of sex because we're already being shaped by the cultural view of sex, whether we know it or not. We find ourselves in a world, in a culture, that views sex as, as something that you can go and pursue and get what you want. The, the mantra of, if it feels good, do it, is kind of the, the mantra of our culture when it comes to sex and sexuality, particularly since the sexual revolution in the 60s. And so this idea of unrestrained desire and expression of sex however we want to it is kind of the, the, the cultural ethic on sexuality right now. Whatever form, whatever partner, whatever pairing, if it feels good to you, if that's what you want, then pursue it. We live in a, in a, in a hookup culture where Tinder and the, the ability to swipe right and left on your phone and say, this person looks attractive to me, they're like less than five minutes away, if we match, like we can get what we need without any kind of need for relationship or connection. We live in a highly pornographic culture, where no longer is there the stigma of, you know, going into the back room at Blockbuster, or having to, like, be the guy who brings the Playboy magazine to the counter at the gas station, but every single device that we have has access to whatever, whenever, if we need it. I, I spent the weekend in Moncton doing a course on ministry to uh, the next generation. And part of our conversation is the reality right now that the average age of first exposure to pornography for students is from ages 9 to 11. This is just the reality and prevalence of pornography in our culture. 65% of men in the church view pornography at least once a month. The younger generations just take it for granted, the fact that people watch porn. This is the prevalence of our cultural view of sexuality. In fact, part of what I learned also this weekend is that, that sexting is now a, a normalized part of courtship. That if you're dating someone, to send them nude pictures of yourself is just, is just how people date these days. And, and in fact, the the... The fear now isn't so much is, is in sending these pictures to someone, but is my phone going to be hacked and these images leaked on the internet? Or when we break up, are they going to post these pictures on the internet of me? Something called revenge porn. Interestingly, though, despite the prevalence of, of pornography in our culture, there, we're actually seeing a bit of a cultural split develop, where... Predominantly, our culture has been very kind of pro-sex, pro-pornography in the, the, the direction that we've been heading. But there has been a, uh, a reaction against that from many feminists, where I read uh, an article that came out this week in the New York Times by a, a feminist author who is writing, the title of the article is Why Sex-Positive Feminism is Falling Out of Fashion. 
And uh, I'm just going to read a section of this here. Uh, the part that's up on the screen is just the very last bit. This uh, Michelle Goldberg writes, in her new book, The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century, the philosopher Amia Srinivasan, Srinivasan, I never said this out loud before. I've been prepping this sermon all week. This is the first time I say it out loud and not reading it. Srinivasan, sure, who is quickly becoming one of the most high-profile feminist thinkers in the English-speaking world, describes teaching Oxford students about second-wave anti-porn activism. She assumes her students, for whom porn is ubiquitous, will find the anti-porn position prudish and passé. They do not. Rather, they're in complete agreement with assertions that could come from some of the most controversial feminist anti-porn activists. The question that she asks is, could it be that pornography doesn't merely depict the subordination of women, but actually makes it real? They said yes. The teacher asked again, does porn bear responsibility for the objectification of women, for the marginalization of women, for the sexual violence against women? Yes, the student said. Yes to all of it. And this last part on the screen, porn, the students say, provides the script for their sex lives one that leaves them insecure and alienated. A man in Servisian's class was unsure if sex that was loving and mutual was even possible. So there is, despite the prevalence of, of uh, pornography in our culture, this realization that maybe, maybe there are downsides to it. And this isn't coming from a, a Christian or biblical perspective. We see the, the rising kind of Me Too movement that has surfaced in the last several years that has shown kind of the dark sexual underbelly of many industries and, and the, the sexual abuse that takes place there. And we see in our culture as well this, this morality of sex that is identifying as consent as the, the, the one ethic of sexuality. And I think this is kind of a, a glimmer of hope for us, is this is something that we can say, okay, here's something in our culture that we're like, all right, that resonates with the kingdom of God. That, that consent is important. Consent is something that we need to acknowledge as important in the conversation of sexuality. But in light of, of all of this, we can see, before we even start diving into a Christian perspective on sex and sexuality, that, that there needs to be some yield signs around this. Like, it can be dangerous. It's incredibly powerful. It is used as an advertising tool because it works. There needs to be some way of protecting ourselves from the destructive ways that sex can be used. I want to point us to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true though someday God will do away with both of them. 
but you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Would it be safe to say that culturally we, in many ways, have become slaves to sexuality? That it is gotten us, in many ways, hook, line, and sinker? That it is causing destruction in the ways that it is practiced on a wide scale? But what if there's a different way? What if, what if the kingdom of God speaks to this issue in a way that is seeking our best? That is not saying that sex is a bad thing in and of itself, but is in fact a gift from God. And that there are ways where this can be used and experienced that displays God's good intention with it. So I want to backtrack with us to some of what we talked about last week. We talked about this idea of the image of God, if you remember. From Genesis 1.27, we read in God's creation account of humanity that it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. There's something about humanity being made in God's image where God creates us with worth and value and purpose and dignity. All of humanity, regardless of your religious belief or not, regardless of, of your view on sex and sexuality, you are created in the image of God and have value and dignity and worth because of how God made you. Jesus quotes from Genesis in Matthew, and he says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is quoting here from kind of the Bible's first glimpse at the creator's intention for sex. That he created this union of man and woman. We see this, the very first picture of this in Adam and Eve, who were made complementary, who were made for each other. Remember, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And he made the woman to be the perfect partner for him. That they would leave their family, that they would come together, that they would be united, and that they would become one flesh. Now, we sometimes over-spiritualize the one flesh thing, but there is a very dynamic physical way of, of talking about that. But also realizing moving forward, there's something that happens in their unity and their becoming one flesh that binds them together moving forward. That there is something about how God created sex to be a binding thing that brings people together, that it is not meant for the, the casual hookup, that it is not something that, that can just be, be played with as if it is unaffecting us long-term. It binds us together. What we also see in this, in light of the image of God, in light of how God created sex, is it is meant to honor the image of God in the other. 
It is meant to be something that is dignifying and not demeaning to the image of God in another person. And so the kingdom of God perspective on sex is one that is honoring the other person. A, 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 a practice of sex that is degrading to the image of God rather than dignifying is not a kingdom of God view of sex. A perspective of sex that is objectifying to the image of God that makes someone just a body for me to use rather than holistic is not sex in the image of God. A, a, a view of sex that is transactional, that, well, if, if you give me this, then I'll give you this, and you owe me, and those kind of things, instead of in the context of a deeper relationship where we're connected not just physically but emotionally and spiritually. Sex, according to the kingdom, is not something to be selfish of, I just need to get what I need, but mutual and self-giving. And resonating with a lot of cultural conversation right now, it is not something to be coercive and obligatory that you owe me, or this is, this is your duty, but it's something that's consensual and is freely given. There is meant to be a difference in how sex is understood by God's people and to the culture around us with how sex is embraced by the fallenness of the world. And we are called as God's people to not just push sex out as something evil, but to redeem it for the way that God has created it to be. I think for some of us, we have grown up in the church that has... And we've talked about sex in such a way where, like, don't talk about it. Maybe people won't do it if we never talk about it. Like, <laughs> sex is bad. Even There's even been times in the church's history where the language around sex, even, even in God's design of marriage and, and healthy, holistic relationship, has been, like, shameful. And that's not appropriate either. The way the people of God are supposed to view and experience sex according to God's design is going to look different than the culture and world around us. And it has from the beginning. Let's go way back in the Bible, okay? Remember the story of the Exodus? The, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were living in Egypt, steeped in Egyptian culture. They were slaves. All of a sudden, the whole thing with Moses, the burning bush, the plagues, let my people go. They go out, cross the Red Sea, and they meet God at Mount Sinai. And in that meeting, God lays out, this is what it looks like for you to be my people. This is how you live as my family, to display my intention for creation to the rest of the world. And God says this through Moses, in Leviticus. When was the last time you heard Leviticus quoted in a sermon? Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people in Canaan, the promised land where they were going. You must not imitate their way of life. 
And then later he says, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Often we read that last line as like, oh, this is the impossible standard and and why is God demanding this holiness from us? But his, his language of be holy for I, your God, am holy is just another way of saying, you are created in my image and you are called to reflect me to the world around you. So don't reflect the Egyptians. Don't reflect the Canaanites. Reflect what I'm calling you to live. And so we see uh, after this, there is this kind of long list of, of God's kind of list of do's and don'ts for sexuality. And this is kind of the infamous verse that people have gone to constantly to be like, a man shouldn't lie with another man in the way that they do with with a woman. And that text has been like beaten to death by many people without acknowledging that it is part of a long list of like, don't sleep with your mom, don't sleep with your sister, don't sleep with your dad's wife even if she's not your mom. Like, all of these relationships that are like, don't sleep with this person or this person or this person. This is not how I designed sex. And if you kind of cross off the list of all the relationships, it's like, don't sleep with these people. You're left with their spouse. What's interesting in this passage is the fact that that God has to say this to these people is because in the culture they were living in, their sexual practices were far from it. He had to say, don't sleep with your mother-in-law because people were going to be sleeping with their mother-in-law. Like, they were shaped by Egyptian sexual culture for 400 years, and now God is saying, no, this is my design for you. And and I I have to specifically cross off the list to show you here's what I designed instead of you being shaped by the Egyptian culture about it for the last 400 years. We see a similar thing in Roman culture of the first century when the church was just starting to grow in the Roman Empire. And I think sometimes we we think that a lot of the cultural things we're dealing with when it comes to sex and sexuality and uh, LGBT issues and all of those kind of things, we think that they're new. But, but they're far from new. If you read anything about the sexual ethic of, of the Romans in the first century, it, our culture pales in comparison to some of the sexual liberty that was going on. Sex in the Roman Empire, particularly if you were a, a wealthy man of status, was about expressing power and dominance. So often men were married, but it was perfectly acceptable for for men to have an affair. In fact, a prostitute, it wasn't considered adultery if you were seeing a prostitute. It was just kind of an acceptable means of release. It was common to see something called pederasty, which is where rich Roman men would have a young boy that they would use as a means of sexual release. In the Roman Empire at the time, 
homosexual sex wasn't seen as taboo as long as you were the dominant one in the encounter. We see a, a culture whose sexuality is very different than what we assume the history of, of sexual practice has been. Yet in the midst of this culture, the sexual practices and views of Christians stood out like a sore thumb. In fact, we even have sources of writers in the first century who are like, what these Christians are doing is weird. Here's a few examples. There's a letter uh, written to a guy named Diognetius who is thought to be the tutor of Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the uh, Roman emperors. And talking about Christians, he says, they marry, as do all others. They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. As a way of saying, they're not people who sleep around in the same way as is normal. There's a letter from a guy named Pliny to Emperor Trajan, around 112 AD. So like, within a hundred years of Jesus' life, talking about the, the movement of the early Christians. And he's writing to the emperor, trying to find, like, these Christians are living very differently than us. Don't really trust them. Is there a way we can, like, arrest them? Like, what, what charges can we bring against the Christians? And one of the things is, like, we can't even nail them for adultery. Like, they don't sleep around the way that others do. Their view of sex was different. And... I'm not saying that the sexual practices of every Christian in the first century was squeaky clean. But their view of, of sexuality was very different from the culture around us. Lucian of Semisata mocked Christianity for being too feminine because of their sexual restraint. Because the men weren't taking advantage of others in the way that the culture was at large. Part of the witness of Christianity in these cultures has been their sexual ethic, their view and practice of sexuality. And as unpopular as Christian views of sexuality are in our culture, is there a way that the gospel can be viewed in how we view and practice sex? Is there a way where it actually can be a witness? Instead of a, you're wrong, you shouldn't do this, a list of rules where we're condemning people who don't follow Jesus for not believing and practicing the same things as us. I would argue that we can actually display the gospel in our view of sexuality because rooted in the idea of us being made in the image of God, if I know who I am and whose I am, borrowing language from last week, and my life is founded in who he says that I am, then my satisfaction and worth is in Jesus whether or not I'm sexually active or not. Which is an important thing for us to hear. Because we live in a culture that is encouraging us. You are not fully alive or fully expressing yourself unless you are expressing yourself sexually. I don't need to be sexually active in order to fully live as the image of God. 
Think about this. Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, chose to live a celibate life. And he was not lacking in his humanity. He was not a broken picture of what it means to be created in God's image. There is a a beauty and there is a a dignity that is given to, to celibacy and abstaining in a Christian worldview that is, is not there broadly in our culture. We can show that we are secure in who we are and who Jesus says we are by living celibate. I think a Christian view of sex and sexuality also displays a trust a trust that a life where I am freely following Jesus and his way is going to be better than what the world has to offer me. Trusting when Jesus says the life that he gives is abundant, is better than what is offered to us. I also think that the gospel is displayed in our view of sex and sexuality because of Jesus' victory on the cross. I don't have to be enslaved to my desires in a way where I'm preyed on. My desires are preyed on by the world around me and and being hooked. And and though we will battle with sex addiction and, and dealing with pornography, and that is an ongoing battle for many people, there is power to overcome those things because of the work of the Spirit in our lives and Jesus' victory over the grave. And in fact, we have community around us that can help us work through that and become people who are no longer slaves to our desires, who can live victoriously, who can live with the image of God displayed in us and and a dignity displayed despite our own shortcomings. And and I want to even encourage you, if if that's where you're at, there's a fantastic, a fantastic group that meets, I think on Wednesday nights at our, our Cornwall site called Celebrate Recovery, where they are working through things like, how do I, uh, how do I work through the reality of, of my sexual brokenness or, or, or my addiction to pornography? And, and I, I highly encourage you to check that out. But you might say, in light of what we're talking about this morning, well, what if I'm not married? If, if you're making this big deal, like God's design is, you know, you're married, you're in this male-female relationship, you're you're dignifying one another and the image of God and how sex is practiced? What if I'm single and longing? What, what if I'm in a relationship but I'm not married and I'm, I'm trying to sort out that reality? What if I experience same-sex attraction and I have no idea what to do about it and what that means for me in trying to follow Jesus? I think these are important things for us to deal with and and not pretend like the world is is so easily black and white and clean. These are important things for us to wrestle with and and particularly when it comes to Christians who are dealing with same-sex attraction. 
where so often the church's strong language about the LGBTQ community has made it very difficult for Christians who don't know where their place is, who are like, I'm attracted to men and I'm a male. Like, I don't, I don't know if I fit in this community. We need to be a space, despite holding to a biblical view of sexuality, that is always willing to say, you're welcome to come and sort these things out with us. You are always welcome to come to Jesus. That you don't have to be cleaned up. You don't, you don't have to um, have a, a perfect sexual history to come to and, and be with Jesus. You don't have to have, have broken up that, that toxic relationship in order to come to Jesus. You don't have to, like, I don't even know like, the right way to say it. Like, you don't have to not be gay in order to come and see what it means to follow Jesus. We are sorting these things out and trusting that Jesus is going to meet us in that. In fact, our job as Christians is to point people to the good news of the gospel and to Jesus, and he is going to deal with heart issues in all of us. He invites all of us to pick up our cross and follow him, and so there are going to be things where he is calling me to put this desire to death in order to follow him. And he's inviting us all to do that, whether as a single or in a relationship, or whether we're married and we have a distorted view of sex, whether we're same-sex attracted. He's inviting us to pick up our cross and to follow him, and that way is going to lead us to life. There's really interesting words that Jesus says in Matthew 19. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those for whom it's given. I should perk our ears. He's speaking to me here. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Meaning there are people, a eunuch at the the time were, were those who were essentially castrated so that they could be kind of very close to royalty or the queen without fear that they were going to try to sexually take advantage of them. So they were someone who did not live out, they were not sexually active. There were those who were born that way. There were those who had been made eunuchs by others. And he says there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus is showing that the Christian ethic of sexuality isn't just, okay, you have to be married and in a relationship to be uh, the picture of what God intends for sexuality. But he also says, you can be someone who chooses to live not sexually active and there is a dignified way to live in the kingdom of God. He actually elevates this as, a, as something that is, is beautiful and should be upheld as part of his kingdom. We see Paul's language of saying, listen, if, if you don't have to get married, 
and, and you can be celibate, like, there's a whole lot that you can do for the kingdom. And Paul actually encourages that. We know, though, we're in an imperfect and broken world where many of the times the, the forced celibacy of individuals has led to deep sexual abuse, and we see that in the church. I guess where I, I need us to land on this is to be able to say, none of us perfectly embody God's intention for sex. Many of us are living in shame because of how this has been talked about, because of how it has been laid down as a law, whether we've had an affair or we've been promiscuous, or whether in the words of Jesus, you have lusted after a woman in your heart and you have committed adultery. Maybe you've been told that you're dirty by those in the church. And some of the kind of purity culture that that rose in the 80s and 90s that told people, like, if you don't wait until you're married to have sex, then, then your future's ruined. And if you do, then I promise you that sex and marriage is going to be the best thing ever. And maybe you've saved yourself till marriage and you're realizing that sex and marriage is hard and takes work. Maybe you're feeling like, how could someone accept me or want me with the past that I've had or the people that I've been with? And you remember kind of the analogy that was used in, man, like purity culture rallies where they would like take a rose and pass it around the room and then they'd bring it back up to the front and it'd be all like mangled and broken because 500 teenagers have been handling this rose. I'd be like, do you want to be like this? Like, this is what happens when you sleep with a lot of people. Who's going to want the rose? I remember seeing a video one time of of a a preacher I appreciate who kind of corrected this, and he says, Jesus wants the rose. Like, we might have a, a past that is broken. We might be dealing with sexual brokenness in our lives right now, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus shed his blood on the cross because he wants the rose. He wants us even in our brokenness, and he is the one who brings healing. There's so much more we could get into with this. And I think we just need to call it a day there. Go to small group. Let's pray. Jesus, you do offer us life and life abundant. And we trust that your way is good. That there is actually a way where the gospel can be displayed in how sexuality is lived out according to your design. But knowing our brokenness, God, we, we, we all don't really live up to that perfect picture. But, but 
Jesus, you still want us to come to you. You still want to bring healing. You still want to be the solution. You want to be the satisfaction that we might be looking for and longing for other people to want us and desire us and and to ask for us physically. We're wanted by you. We're loved by you. And Jesus, my prayer is that we would be so filled with your life, so wrapped up in awe of who you are that that we don't need to feel like we need to go anywhere else. Spirit, would you help us? Help us to walk in a way that displays the goodness that you intend for sex, whether that is shaping our sexual practices in our marriage so that they are dignifying to the image of God. Or or maybe it's those of us single and invited to consider what it means to live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God, that we might actually display the beauty of your image in that. Spirit, give us the strength to. Because in the midst of this culture, it is hard. For those of us who need community around us to help us work through this, I pray that we as a community would respond to be a welcoming place to help others sort out these things together. For those of us who we might need to look into CR and and explore the beautiful, transformative community that that can be for us. Maybe it's just a conversation. But Jesus, would we walk out of here not feeling a sense of shame of we're not living up, but a sense of hope I hope that, Jesus, you are the answer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.